Hey there, ladies and gentlemen. What a treat we have for you. This is a brand new Beer and Loathing. Their special guest this week. He needs no introduction, although I do give him one at the start of this episode. Mr. Luke Russer from NBC News, also my colleague at MSNBC. Might be a little loud in the background on this one, but that's what happens when you tape a show in a bar. Enjoy. Live right now on Meerkat, the live streaming app. Hello to the audience out there. We have a special guest today who I'm going to introduce in just a minute. We're also taping this. We're going to put it up as a podcast. So maybe you're listening to the podcast. Maybe you can't see us now. Uh, but if you ever want to watch live and you're listening to the podcast, you can always check out the live stream. Uh, check my Twitter feed for that. I'll tell you when the next one is. Uh, before we get going tonight, though, with our special guest, I want to welcome back our, uh, our moderator, Jeff Eldridge. Jeff, how you doing tonight? Uh, doing well. How you doing? Well, I'm doing great. How, and, how uh, was the big trip to Iceland? I haven't been able to talk to you since you've been back. This was your first trip abroad as an adult. What what did you see? How did it go? Did you get bullied at all? What what was it like? Well, when you put it that way, it's it's kind of embarrassing, I guess. My my last uh, my last overseas trip, not counting the uh, maritime provinces of Canada, was in 1996 when I was a, uh, a junior in high school. I went to uh, I went to England. I'm terrified of flying, so I flew. I flew to Iceland. I was inspired by Jeff. Jeff just spent uh, two weeks on his own in Greece, on his own. So you told me it's okay to travel alone. Good things will happen. Yeah. That was, you know, I, I have a mixed a mixed assessment of the traveling alone thing from my okay. from my week. I did. It was there. I did make a new friend, and that was nice. And you know, we we hung out, and uh, it was it was one of those like uh, what a small world this is kind of things. He uh, he used to live a few blocks from me here in New York. Uh, he moved up to Boston a few months ago, and his parents just moved to my hometown. So there were all sorts of connections there. So it was cool to hang out with him, and, and we did a little like, sightseeing and stuff. Uh, but then you told me, like, go to a bar and, uh, and make friends there. And I went to a, what was supposed to be the number one night spot in Reykjavik. And I said, well, I'm going to make a, a ton of uh, new friends here. And it, I found out there's like three types of people in the bar. There's, uh, <clears throat> there's people who, like you, are alone. And when you look at them, you realize they, they want to be alone. They're very, like, un, unwelcoming. Uh, and then there were couples. And the couples, you know, don't want a, a third wheel or anything. Um, and then there were people who don't speak English. They only speak Icelandic. And I, I didn't have much to say to them. So I, I kind of sat in the bar, and I tried to make myself seem approachable. Uh, but it didn't work out. So that was my one. That was my one. Did, did you see glaciers? Did you go to hot springs? Did you see fjords? Whale watching? What was your What was your experience? It's great. I only realized when I got back that they don't have trees in Iceland. I, I knew something was missing, and it turns out it was trees. Um, the uh, the there's this thing. There's this like famous the Disney World of Iceland is uh, they call it the Blue Lagoon. It's in the middle of a geothermal area. It's just like flat land and rocks and it's all the like uh, sulfur uh, like the sulfur springs you know hot springs and you bathe in the salt water and it, you know, it adds four years to your life or something so I wanted to go to that uh, I, I woke up on the, the last day I was there I was supposed to do a uh, volcano hike I overslept so I said okay I'm on my own today uh, I got in the car I drove to the Blue Lagoon and it turned out they said if you look at the fine print on our website you need a reservation so I, I couldn't go to the, the Blue Lagoon uh, I missed the volcano hike, so I ended up eating a, um, a couple of Icelandic donuts that day. Uh, and sitting on a cliff, though. The cliffs were beautiful. Um, I, 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 did, I liked Iceland overall. It was, it was a good experience. I tried to, oh, the other thing I tried to do was go to an Icelandic Premier League soccer game. That was my goal for the trip. I wanted to see what Premier League is like in Iceland. 
and I drove around trying to find the stadium because the, the top one of the top teams is in Reykjavik. I'm going to find the stadium. This is great. I can't find it for the life of me, and I'm looking at the map. And I, you know, it turns out there's no stadiums. It's it's it's, it's a city. It's a it's a country of 300,000 people. The Premier League is guys get off work at five o'clock and they go play soccer on an empty field. There's no stands. There's no admission. That was the Premier League. So that was my other that was my other thing. But so but anyway, are you excited for more travel? Are you going to go abroad again? Yeah, I, I know. I'd give me another 16 years now, probably uh, another 18 years, whatever it's been. But uh, anyway, Jeff. Um, Jeff is going to be monitoring all of the uh, questions and comments on Meerkat through the night. So if you, uh, if you have any for our guests tonight, any questions, any comments, anything you're dying to know, anything that's prompted by our, our uh, conversation, I just send them in. Jeff will uh, read them off and we'll try to get them answered. And with that, I think it's time that I introduce tonight's special guests. Are you ready for this? I started actually writing these introductions a few weeks ago, so this one's going to be extra good. Um, my guest tonight is a reporter who has the same beat I once had, except he's actually good at it. Luke Russert covers Capitol Hill for NBC News, which means that whenever Congress does something, he's all over it. It's a busier job than it sounds. In addition, he's a frequent fill-in host on MSNBC. He also has his own show on Shift. It's called The Briefing. He is also a graduate of Boston College, which means he obviously didn't have the grades for Boston University. And he's a diehard fan of the Buffalo Bills, for which we extend our heartfelt sympathies. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Steve. Mr. Luke I appreciate Russell. it. Very kind introduction there. I appreciate that. And I, I share your fear of flying, however, not as extreme that it would prohibit me from going abroad for 16 years. But uh, well, So what, what is your fear of flying? Like, what is it? What is it? I'm just going to adjust your microphone oh, yeah, please here. Please do. Right? Oh, there yeah, we sure. go. Uh, tell me about your fear of flying. What, what uh, is it? Is it the... Um, is it terrorism? Is it the crap? What are you worried about? Uh, it's not terrorism. It's a few things. It's number one, it's claustrophobia. So I do not like being in an aluminum capsule for a prolonged period of time. I can last about eight hours, and then I start to freak out. Uh, but that's on a good day. That's with the assistance of some wine on the plane and everything. Is that, is that more claustrophobia? Like it's, But then it's claustrophobia and turbulence. Right. And when I'm in the middle of a sky and let's say turbulence starts up at the beginning of a three, four hour flight and it's not going to end and the captain goes, oh, the air is going to be bumpy for the duration of this flight. I'm totally powerless. I have no control. And I sort of sit there in my seat just clutching the armrests. All that being said, though, I've gotten better in the last few years, and I can uh, I can suck it up, and I try to do mind exercises, but it's not fun. I agree with you. Do you? I mean, do you ever get to a point like because for like work purposes, you obviously have to travel right, right, a lot. Right, right. Do you ever find very creative ways to get around? Like, I'll take the bus for twelve hours. Do you ever? <laughs> do you ever do that? I used to take the train. I mean, I, I've done the uh, Acela from Boston to DC. You know, six and a half hours, seven hours, a few times. Uh, but I've basically just been able to suck it up, uh, and it's not an enjoyable experience. It really isn't. It's kind of similar to the film Die Hard, John McClane, wrenching the armrest there. And then you sort of try and think in your head, okay, well, if you're on a boat and you hit some choppy water, the boat's not going to sink. It's the same with a plane. And then everyone who flies says the most dangerous time is takeoff and landing, which, quite frankly, I'm not too fearful during takeoff and landing. I'm much more fearful during turbulence. I see. I, I, I'm fearful in the middle. I mean, I'm fearful throughout the entire flight. But yeah. it is. I am worried about the terrorism aspect of it. I'll, right. I'll admit, and it's just it's one of those like it's it's completely unnatural and irrational. But the other thing is like it's it's one of those everybody's like. When I get scared, I just whoever's going to the bathroom at any given oh, minute, yeah. I'm just like, are they going to the bathroom 
or are they trying to kill I me? I do actually glance long and hard at who walks by to go to the bathroom, and I try and calculate in my mind. But here's, but here's the thing. When you start playing that game, it's like, I feel like the number one rule of, of, of somebody who's trying to do harm to flight is right. they don't want to look like they're doing harm. Correct. So I'm like, Correct. if it's a 75-year-old grandma, yeah. I'm nervous. Because okay. that's who yeah. it would be. It, would be, it wouldn't be the, anybody I expect, I, you know. So I... There was one. There was one person on the on the flight on the way back who was spending too much time in the bathroom, and it got to a point where I was like, I was thinking about getting up, knocking on the door, yeah, seeing Force something, saying out. something, you know. Right. Then Sky, he came out and he had Sky Marshall, Steve Kornacki. <laughs> so, <laughs> I but I, I did survive the flight, so that was nice. Well, let's let's talk about something besides sure. air traffic, uh, besides uh, air travel and all that stuff. Well, um, and by the way, we have uh, throughout the night, and this is something the Meerkat audience can participate in. We do these things called icebreaker questions every week where there's get-to-know-you questions about our guests. Some of them are really stupid, so I'll, I'll ask a few of them to you throughout the okay, night, sure. Luke. We'll, we'll get to those in a few minutes, but let's just start. Look, you cover politics. Uh, it is you know, The political season's come early, I guess, for 2016. Um, is Donald Trump going to be our next president? I don't think he will, but I think that he's completely injected uh, a new type of momentum or energy, whatever you want to call it, in the race. For policies, I think a lot of us felt no longer would be front and center in a presidential election. You remember 2012, Reince Priebus, head of the RNC, there was that big autopsy. What did the autopsy say? The Republican Party had to do a better job amongst Latinos, had to do a better job with young people, had to do a better job with minority outreach, had to do a better job with women. And it seemed that they had figured out what the prescription was to cure their ills uh, that happened in the 2012 election. And that's just been sort of thrown into the old fireplace and burned up. And they're going in a uh, direction that they feel perhaps may, they may be able to double down on, on the white vote, the white electorate. But as George Will has recently written, you'd have to have Ronald Reagan levels of uh, turning out the vote in the white electorate. I think it's over 60% yeah. of the white that's vote. That's very too. hard. Um, so I do think that what Trump has done is sometimes in the media... We, we, we acknowledge the progress that's happened in the country, uh, positive progress that's happened in the country, but I don't think we take into account that not the entire country feels the same way that New York or L.A. or D.C. or Boston does. And the pendulum has swung pretty far in the direction of political correctness. And while most people understand that what the future is and that's ultimately positive change, I think Donald Trump speaks to a large amount of people that are not entirely comfortable with that. And he also is sort of, I think, this blank canvas that all these people that have all these types of views uh, that would be considered in a place like New York or D.C. or Boston or L.A. Uh, to be extreme, he gives people a sort of springboard to have those views and perpetuate them front and center. I can tell you just from covering Capitol Hill, he makes a lot of establishment people nervous. Uh, not only because of the math that we just talked about in terms of getting to uh, Almighty 270, but it's just the lasting damage. So far in the polling, you've seen that Latinos are differentiated between Donald Trump and the rest of the field. That's true in August. What happens, though, if Donald Trump is still up there in March and April, essentially forcing people uh, to make a declaration on one side or the other of an immigration issue and how far you get? 
I got, I'll ask you, did you ever think we'd be talking about birthright citizenship in August of 2015, especially after what happened to Mitt Romney? I never thought so. I, no, I mean, that's that's the thing about, like, you're saying, if we're talking about this in March or April of next year, I mean, that's, I'm looking at what Trump has gone through already. Right. And I'm saying if, if it hasn't, you know, affected him uh, yet, what would, like, knock him down at we this point? We thought the John McCain comments would kick him out, right, because he disrespected veterans. And that seems so quaint third right now. rail of Republican right? politics, disrespecting veterans. Not a problem. He survived it. Uh, allegations that his wife said that, she, that he raped her, sexually assaulted her, that came out in a book, didn't stick. Going after Megyn Kelly, didn't stick. Mexicans are rapists, didn't stick. So he seems to be Teflon right now. Well, this, and I don't know what I, takes him out. And, really and the other don't. thing is, like, I, I, I've had this conversation with some other people lately, too, because there's always that, like, in, in political media, there's always this, like, tension between the political science crowd that basically says, like, almost everything is predetermined, almost right. everything you read in the news doesn't actually matter. And, and they're very, very skeptical of the Trump thing. And then you'll find a lot more, I think, on the reporter side who say, well, this stuff matters more than, you can't maybe quantify it, but it matters more. And I, I think, I've been thinking this for a while, but the Trump thing has really crystallized it. I'm, I'm more and more moving away from the political science thing on this. Because I, I, it, it just, the rules that, that exist say this can't happen. The rules right. that exist say Donald Trump should not be building support at this point. He doesn't have endorsements from the party establishment. He went to war with Fox News. You know, he's said things, like you say, the John McCain things. All these things we we're, we're just we reflexively say you can't get away with. And I just, he's showing that something is different in politics right now, that the, the mood of the country, and something of the power of his personality. I think if you look at the latest Des Moines Register poll, which is really the gold standard in Iowa, I think people really need to read that poll, look at that poll. They're rarely wrong. You look at that poll, Trump and Carson, the top two, roughly get 41%. You throw in Ted Cruz in there, who I would say is Mr. Anti-Establishment right. of the elected. Roughly 50% of Iowa Republican caucus goers are fervent anti-establishment voters right now. If they support Donald Trump, Ben Carson, and Ted Cruz as their top choices. That's wild. And if you think about, all right, where does the establishment guy like Jeb or a Walker or a Rubio fit in there? Walker probably has the best chance, but to those 50%, he doesn't look like the best alternative right now. They'd that's rather go all right. in on a Trump or a Carson or a um, Well, that's right. That's what I keep thinking. I, I hear like the, the skeptical take on Trump is, well, look, he's at 25 30%. That's his ceiling. Right. When second place is Ben Carson at 18%, I don't think Trump's ceiling is 30%. And not to mention, you have Ted Cruz, who unlike Trump and unlike Carson, he actually has a campaign apparatus. He has millions in Super PAC money ready to go. He strikes me as he's someone who can catch these voters if they want to fall off the Trump or Carson trains. Scott Walker's trying to position himself to do that, but it's been very difficult. I'll go back, though, where I think this all sort of starts which is 2009 with the grand GOP plan to take back Congress. We're going to oppose the president as much as possible. We're going to really try and isolate the president, and we're going to appeal to people that are upset with the size of government, that feel that their country's been taken over, quote-unquote. And if you talk to Republicans, they admit that they actively courted a more conservative element of the party than in the past. Everyone said after 2008, you should become like David Cameron, moderate, acknowledge right. climate change, acknowledge gay rights. They went in another direction because they saw an easier pass in a non-presidential year election in 2010 was to go after these more conservative voters. So they brought them into the tent. A lot of these Tea Party people, they make McConnell, they make Boehner, you saw what happened to Eric Hanner, they make them uncomfortable. Now you're starting to see what happens when you bring them in the tent full on. They are rabid. They do not want to fund the government. They don't want to extend the debt ceiling. Uh, 
they hate the healthcare law. So when you try and tell them that these are the limitations of uh, where we are in divided government, they don't want to hear it. And Donald Trump, Carson Cruz speaks to that. And look at what it's done to Scott Walker. He's now coming out against Washington Republicans, right. which is very ironic considering where he started. Well, he's, I mean, and, and Scott Walker's had, he's had a rough summer. I mean, listen, I, I looked at the numbers today. Jeb Bush, I can't get over this. These, and this is Iowa. I know Iowa's right. a different, you know, a different breed. But Jeb Bush is at 5% in Iowa. They asked favorable, unfavorable among Republicans in Iowa. And he's 19 points underwater. It's it's amazing to me. I mean, we, we said at the beginning of the, six months ago, everybody said Jeb Bush is the front runner. It'll ultimately be Jeb Bush. I, I'm I'm looking at this right now. As every week passes, I'm saying it's not going to be Jeb Bush. Where is his path? I mean, okay, right. So you have Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, Florida. Florida would seem to be the most natural place where he. But could you can't win, wait till Florida. But you can't wait till he Florida. Has to win New Giuliani Hampshire. showed us that he pretty much has to win New Hampshire. And look who's doing well in New Hampshire. Rubio could spike in New Hampshire. Trump's doing very well Kasich. there. Kasich. Kasich's the and one I think are, is going to, yeah. And they are also, there's an anti-establishment sentiment in New Hampshire that exists for quite some time. So it's almost as if Jeb Bush raised all this money, expected the field to clear out. But honestly, Steve, there's no incentive now to leave the race. With the amount of money the Super PACs put in, and they, this rule they have in the RNC bylaws, it's Rule 40B or one of those. Like Reed Wilson did a great thing on this in the morning column, so I encourage everyone to read it. But essentially, unless you win eight states, you can't go forward to the nomination. So there's no incentive for all these people to get out. It's if Marco wins two or three, Jeb has seven, you know, Cruz has four, Walker, they'll stay to the end. And you're going to have these sort of regional breakdowns. And I'm not saying there's going to be a broker convention, but if you're a super PAC like Rick Perry, right? You can't pay your own staff, but your super PAC has around $20 million right now. He's running a ghost zombie campaign. He's not going to get out. He's just going to sit In there. In 2012, yeah. Perry would be out by now. Right. He's going to sit around now until May. So what's that mean for a Cruz, a Rubio, a Walker, a Jeb? Jeb's going to have over $100 million. There's no incentive for him to get out because the idea is, all right, maybe someone will self-implode and I can still stand here. It creates a very difficult circumstance for the pivot to the general eventually. Let, let me just, uh, if you had to rank the top three right now on the Republican side in terms of yeah. likelihood of winning the nomination? What, what would your top three be? Well, this is the tough question because you and I, we keep thinking we can't possibly say Trump, right? You See, I think I, I think I might put him in my top three and, now. And I, I would move him into the top three. I still think that some variation of Walker or Rubio can cut through there. I've been very unimpressed with what Walker's done so far. I felt that he's been fighting on Trump's uh, ground, and that's not been good for him. He made this pivot to foreign policy a little early in the campaign. I thought the China speech was uh, reflective of someone who was trying to change the narrative and, and, and get somewhere. But I, I, I would, I, I still think Rubio's strategy, uh, while it's not translating into polling numbers right now, he's not front center. He's not being attacked by anyone yet, right? right? Jeb's laid off of him. Walker's laid off of him. They're kind of going at each other. Trump's going at all of them, making fun of Rubio a little bit, saying that he, he, he should have waited his turn. I think he can kind of sit back and pick up the pieces and say, hey, maybe, just maybe, I'm the best alternative. I'm very sorry for trying to do a bipartisan immigration deal, but I'm conservative with you and everything else. Remember, he wrote a Tea Party wave in 2010 right. for Charlie Crist. Oh, I, I, I agree. I think, I think Rubio really is but my top three, just likelihood yeah. to win it for very different reasons here. Rubio, I put at number one right now. Yeah, I just think it'll ultimately come back to a moment for him. Number two, I think it's Kasich. Because I think Kasich wins New Hampshire. And I'm just, I'm just looking at it that way. Number three, I would put Trump up there right now. In, 
interestingly enough, if you talk to establishment Republicans, the Reins Priebus people, those types of people, they would die and go to heaven for a case of Rubio ticket. Oh, Florida and Ohio? Are you Florida, yeah. Ohio, a centrist, right. a young guy, a young Latino right. from Florida. Right. And, that, and so, how ironic would that be? Is that if the rise of Trump and Ted Cruz <laughs> then gave the party right, uh, or, 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 and, gives, and or they get Trump Jeff Sessions? There you go. This could be right. a different one. <laughs> well, let's check in with uh, Jeff because I know we got some comments coming in. Let's see what we got. I mean, as you know, your Meerkat audience loves Donald Trump. Oh, they, yeah. they have nothing but great things to say about Donald Trump. They really want the whole hour to just be Trump plays. Uh, so if we could just be a little more enthusiastic about him, they, they would be delighted. Um, the, do you want a serious question or do you want like a lighter? Give us a lighter one and a serious one. How about um, any thoughts on the VMAs last night for the yeah. lighter side? Um, and they are asking about Bernie Sanders. Who yeah. They don't really feel that, that great about Bernie Sanders. They don't feel that no, I'm kidding. I'm ah, kidding. oh, okay. I, no. Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's, okay, first of all, Kanye West 2020. Well, <laughs> I thought that was a really hilarious rant by Kanye. I enjoyed it. Uh, we are the millennials. He is 37, 38, so I don't know if he quite. No, uh, he's not a, you're right, he's, he's not a millennial. He's not a millennial, right. but I guess he's married to a millennial, so he's close <laughs> enough. He's there. My takeaways from the VMAs were a few things. Uh, Jared Leto, is he in character for the Joker or something? Because that pink hair. I mean, Jared Leto's an odd guy, but he was especially odd last night. Um, I didn't feel that Miley was absurd as I thought. I felt that everyone kind of has seen her in so many stages of dress before that nothing she could do would really have shocked anybody. And I wasn't really shocked by her, which was surprising. Uh, and then again, you know, Taylor Swift just... The ability to market oneself, has the Twitter beep with Nicki Minaj, sings the song with her on stage, then gets uh, gives the award to Kanye. You want to talk about Teflon, Taylor Swift, my goodness, it just doesn't stop. It doesn't can, stop. Can, let me ask you, because you're a few years younger than me. I, I yeah. Just, I, I, this is the way I, I date yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember Billy Ray Cyrus? Yeah, I do. You do remember Billy I Ray? The yeah. best, one of the best mullets of all time. That was yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, just, I remember when he got really big, and then and yeah. I, it, was, it was horrible. It was a horrible moment in our culture, I thought. And then all these years later, there's Miley Cyrus. And I, I couldn't believe that that was. I saw Miley there. Cyrus in his early 2011 when she was the youngest host of SNL. I went to the dress rehearsal, and she was at that time Hannah Montana. Right. And she had a very uh, distinct presence about her at that age. She may have been 16 or 17. So I was impressed, because sometimes you have the teeny boppers and they go do something like SNL and they don't do very well. She did very well, and you look at her last night, she's never nervous, she's always in it, and she's a performer. I'm interested what the ceiling is for her, though, because, all right, we already went from the Disney star to now this sort of alt-rock pop ultra extreme sex symbol what's the next career invention is it acoustic solo ballads is it massive techno is it country i mean she's got to reinvent herself in the next few years and i don't know what the next step is but that well you know now how old is madonna right now madonna's about 50 right 50 50 yeah i think she may be even close to 60. she's no i'm not i think she's about 56 57 years old it's and it's amazing to, to keep your career going, when you're Madonna and your shock value is sort of your your 
you know, remember Madonna kissing Britney Spears at the VMAs? That was the biggest deal in the world. Miley's already done everything like that. It's like, what the so hell what else you, could yeah. she do? I mean, it's, it's, it's a like, Donald Trump problem. Right. Donald yeah. Trump squeezed everything right. he could it's in the like, first two months like, of his campaign. It's all in there. So what about this? What about the uh, the serious question then? Uh, was was Bernie Sanders? Yeah. Bernie Sanders would never want to talk about the VMAs. Bernie Sanders talks about serious issues all the time. That's all he cares about. He doesn't ask. He doesn't deal with personalities. Um, there's the new poll that uh, in Iowa they said Clinton 37. Sanders thirty. They put Biden in it. Biden was at was at fourteen. Uh, but what do you? I mean, what do you think of Hillary's position right now? I mean, we all said three months ago, two months ago. Of course, she's got the nomination. It's it's hers. Are you are you one hundred percent on that right now? Well, I think she's in a very precarious situation right now, and I think that the email controversy, if you look at all this, uh, these internals, has certainly taken a toll on her with independents, uh, with moderates, uh, with men within the Democratic coalition. But if you look at what her pathway is to the nomination, she does, still does very well with minority voters. She still does very well with women. And of, of the campaigns that have announced, she honestly is the only one that's equipped and is, is, is structured to compete in all 50 states. So despite the very bad last few months that she's had since May, uh, I think that she still is far and away the, the front runner. And she should be OK, uh, presuming nothing else comes out in this email controversy. She has the testimony October 22nd on Capitol Hill. That'll be must-see TV. But I gotta, be, I gotta be honest with you. The fact that this came out in March and they're still, still feeling the effects of it. What's going on well, in Brooklyn? I mean, is What's it, is, going on across that bridge? Isn't it's it, is, is the nature of the story, it? though, isn't it? Because like, it is a drip-drip story because these emails are going to be released in batches between now and the election. Here's what I don't get. Is that, alright, after 2008, became Secretary of State, everyone had an idea that you were more likely than not probably going to run for president or at least take a very, very serious look at it. Uh, as soon as you got to the Senate in 2000, you were already eyeing the possibility of running in 04 or 08. What was your time going to be? We all know the ambition that that family has. How they allowed themselves to do this, or at least nobody around them said, hey, you know what, this is a terrible idea. It's going to reinforce all the negative perceptions that people have of you, really does shock me. Uh, and if you talk to the Obama people in D.C. and you talk to members of Congress, they're a dumbfounded, and b they don't understand just why. What were you? What, what was worth it? What was was it? Emails about what dress you were wearing? I mean, what was it that you wanted? I, don't, to I mean, here's my, my my theory on it is just it's 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 twenty years, twenty five years, whatever it is since the Clintons have been on the national stage of feeling under siege from the media. Yeah. So it's what you. That's your reflex, is if there is a way for me to control something and keep it away from the media or anybody else who's out to get us, that's what you do. But that's sort of paranoia, and people uh, people get scared of paranoia in the oh, United oh, yes. States. You know? and, and I just think that she's made a lot of unforced errors. That being said, there's nobody like an Obama that can instantly gravitate and, and pick up the baton and move forward. But we were just talking about that poll with Bernie Sanders. So you had Bernie at 30, Biden at 14. That's 44% of the electorate. Now, assume some of those people would go to Hillary if either or Joe or Bernie got out. But still, you're roughly talking about half the Iowa electorate that's more than willing to look at somebody else. A huge drop since May. Well, here's, so here's the bottom line, yes, no. Do you think Biden's going to run? Uh, my heart tells me he will. My head tells me he won't. And I think he's just trying to wait as long as humanly possible. I will say, though, he would have the money to have a puncher's chance. 
So people talk about the, the difficulty in fundraising. He could get some money, and at least enough to get him through Iowa and New Hampshire and to South Carolina. But his problem, I think, is there's no natural consist- constituency within the Democratic coalition. Right. Uh, he's not the minority candidate. Organized labor is not as strong as it was before, and they ultimately probably want to go with the winner. Uh, he, there's not like women are going to flock to him. And remember, there is a lot of oppo on Joe Biden. He has very high ratings right now. There's a lot of sympathy for him. But a few things people forget about. Number one, in this time we're talking about income inequality and the rise of Sanders, Biden is senator from Delaware, home to a lot of credit card companies. If you go through some of those Senate votes, he had a very friendly relationship with credit card companies uh, in big money interest. Number two, the way he handled the Clarence Clarence Thomas nomination, uh, the way he treated Anita Hill. A lot of Democrats, a lot of women thought that he was acting in a misogynistic way during that. And then you have Obama, clean-cut, articulate, African-American guy, referencing uh, Indian Americans at every 7-Eleven and Dunkin' Donuts. So this is not like Joe Biden's this perfect, flawless candidate. Well, there's a, and there's the pension for that kind of stuff, Correct. too. So he and, gets and in, he's under the spotlight, that. and, and then now, would it the happens Clintons, again. Would the Clintons start throwing this on him from day one? Probably not, because you know, he, he would, he would have to, if he runs, he'd he, have to clarify a lot of that. But he also, he has to attack her if he Correct. runs. And I'm and not sure he's comfortable that. doing and that. That's, right. And that's the only way to win, is right. you have to make the email issue front and center. This is why she's not electable. We can't trust her. And that's a bigger point, Steve. I've been shocked, honestly shocked, that O'Malley, Webb, Bernie, Lincoln Chafee, none of them have gone after her on this. None of them. And especially a guy like O'Malley, I mean, who's there in the bare, uh, the bottomest of basements. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. Why don't you throw out something there? Have a, a, at least something. Throw a little a, a grenade. And they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. It's like they're they're biding their time for a possible cabinet position. I don't know. But it's, it's not a winning strategy. Yeah, no. Martin O'Malley can still be Secretary of Transportation, maybe. Yeah, Let's right. see what uh, Jeff has some response to all this. Yeah, just some feedback here. Um, Pastry Plate took issue with me as describing the VMAs as trivial, <laughs> noting that pop culture is very important and influences a lot of people in ways that politics don't. Um, Keith is very frustrated that you view the Bernie Sanders phenomenon as a reflection on Hillary and the servers, says that there's a lot of good things to say about Bernie Sanders independent of Hillary and the servers, and you're not taking him seriously enough uh, by jumping right from that to... Uh, no, no, let's talk about Bernie then. Okay, yeah. look, I, I, I think that there's truth to... Is that Jeff who said that? Yeah. Yeah. Pete. Yeah. Oh, Keith. Sorry. I think that there's truth to that. Um, Bernie Sanders appeals to a section of the electorate in the Democratic side that has been vibrant for years. It's the Eugene McCarthy sort of electorate, right? And uh, a portion of it. And what he's selling, a lot of people buy because it's authentic, right? You have massive income inequality. You have a lot of people that don't understand why when the economy was brought to its knees by this extreme wealthy uh, group of the top 1% and somehow they still get all the breaks. I, I totally get what he's selling. The r- reason why I don't think it's something that will automatically propel him to the nomination is that he just doesn't have the inroads in the different constituency in the different groups in the constituency that you need. Well, I mean, let's, let's just be blunt about it. He's not a Democrat. Right. Democratic I mean, he's socialist. running for the Democratic nomination, and he's not a registered Democrat, and he's built an entire career outside the Democratic Party. And so there's there's a definitely, and it's bigger than I think we all thought it would be, there's a, a large constituency he's connecting with 
But you talk about the whole like political science thing, and it's like, who on the Democratic side is going to endorse Bernie Sanders in the end? They got super delegates. They got a thousand super delegates right. this convention. Are and any of them like going to endorse? And, and he doesn't have the natural streams of money uh, to stay afloat for some time. But what it does show you, and I think this also correlates with the rise of Trump, is here's a self-admitted democratic socialist from Vermont. Uh, he looks like a, a Nescat school professor, essentially. Somebody goes, told me the professor from uh, Back to the Future. Yeah, literally, it's <laughs> kind of like that. And what you're seeing is that people gravitate towards it because they go, you know what? This guy, Bernie Sanders, and this guy, Donald Trump, they are what they are, they can't be bought, and they're not kissing anyone's ass. And that is a very strong uh, appeal in politics, especially this day and age where people feel the process has been so bought out and the politics are so fake. The issue, though, and this is the political scientists in us, that doesn't translate to ultimately winning. It'll, it'll be a movement, it'll get a lot of attention, but remember how much attention uh, Ron Paul got for very much the same reason. Although right? I can say, the thing about Bernie that I am curious about, like I, for all the reasons you're saying, I, I'm skeptical he could ever win the nomination. I do think he could win Iowa, oh, and sure. I do think he could win New Hampshire. Sure. And I know how irrational the political world is, so I, I know that other states after that set up nicely for Hillary, but I look at it and I say, a world where Hillary Clinton loses to Bernie Sanders in Iowa and New Hampshire is a world where the media and Democrats are going crazy with panic. They are. They're in, and it would, I think, force her to try and reconcile what is it that propelled him there. Is it that he's more believable on issues of income inequality? Is it that he has a better connection with voters? And they would have to reboot. All that being said, does Bernie Sanders have the funds, the wherewithal to compete in the American Samoa in June of, of 16? The American for, for Samoa delegates? caucus. You know, it's just, I, I, I don't see it. Uh, I do think, though, he's, he's doing a good, uh, a good service to the party because, remember, the knock on Clinton, you know, Glass-Steagall, and going back to all the uh, loosening of financial regulation uh, and, 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 and the way in which criminal justice was applied with the crime bill in the 90s, she, he's sort of making Clinton atone for the sins uh, of her husband, the political sins of her husband. And I think that's something that will ultimately help her and it will help the party as they move forward in this in, in yeah, and, and, and I, I'll give him credit, too. I mean, nobody else was willing to step up to the plate and run against Hillary. And, sure. he, and he stepped up and he did right. it. And I think a lot of Democrats now on the sidelines are looking at it and saying, yeah. she was maybe a little more vulnerable yeah. than, than we thought. Maybe well, let's we should uh, have a chance. I said we were going to get to some of these icebreakers. We want to get oh, yeah. to know Luke a little bit here. So here's sure. how it works. Uh, pick a number between 1 and 20. Now, some of these are... Uh, you know, uh, uh, about your career, so you want number seven. Uh, oh, this is a good one. Okay. Well, it's not. It's interesting. Uh, you're a political reporter. Think back to a, a campaign. It could be a presidential campaign. It could be for Senate, for governor, for mayor somewhere. Sure. A campaign you've read about, you know the history of, and you wish, man, I wish I'd covered that campaign as a reporter. Uh, okay, well, there are a few. I think number one is definitely Bobby Kennedy's 1968 campaign. Uh, I love reading about the Kennedys. I find the whole family fascinating. I find the, the Irish tragedy fascinating. But if you remember that campaign, it was launched in March of 68. Now, imagine if someone launched in March of 2016. And people thought uh, that was a fine time to launch. A little late, but it was normal. And Kennedy basically runs on this platform of uh, appealing to minorities and working class whites. He's the last Democrat who truly was able to do that. Clinton was able to do it to some degree, but Kennedy was the one who was really, really able to do that. 
And the way that campaign was run, how he had to go to places like Oregon and compete, and he won California in somewhat of an upset, and of course the way it ended. Uh, I've talked to people who were on that campaign and covered it, who either worked for him or they were reporters there. Our own Mike Barnacle, actually, interestingly enough, was working on that campaign. And people just felt it was this incredible rush, this this two to three months just rush of, oh my gosh, this is possible, we're gonna come from behind and, and beat McCarthy. Uh, and, and, and beat Humphrey and, and be able to pull something out. So that's one I really really would have liked to be on. Uh, if we go further back, uh, I, I think covering the, the Jefferson uh, Adams <laughs> would have been wild. <laughs> and people forget, I mean, the newspapers back then were all advocacy newspapers. Sure. There was no, yeah, so who would you have been written? Who, yeah. Which I, team I were you know, on I, that I one? I go back and forth on that. I don't, because I think they had such great ideas, both of them. Probably I don't have, think you would have been a good reporter for it then. You've got to have a strong... Would have been an Adams guy. The end one of, the of them is a traitor and one yeah. of them is, you know, yeah, an Adams guy. Yeah. Probably, yeah. probably going like back. Uh, yeah. There's amazing ones throughout history. You look at um, like FDR's first campaign would have been really interesting to cover, coming out of the Depression. Uh, if you look at how would we have covered Nixon in the social media? Well, age? you know, the, the one that I that I would pick that stands out to me is '68. Uh, the general election. Yeah. I mean, because you had the, the presence of a third party candidate always makes it more or interesting. The convention in Chicago, so, too. right? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. got the convention in Chicago. Right. Even the Republican convention in '68, it's it's kind of forgotten. But yeah. Reagan almost came in, in there, certain, second yeah. year as governor of California, yeah. and stole the nomination from Nixon. And Nixon cuts the deal with Strom Thurmond to the save the nomination. Right, right, right. The and southern, that's yeah, and that's yeah. where the Southern strategy mm -hmm. really comes from that's for true. Nixon. And then you get that general election where it's George Wallace, the segregationist, is gobbling up the Southern states. You know, and Humphrey almost at the very end breaks uh, with Johnson on the, on the uh, war. Humphrey came closer to being president than people realize. I mean, really, very a close. swing of a couple hundred thousand votes. Very, very Hubert close. Humphrey, and I mean, I've seen so many cases. And you think written about that. that election is that if you go through the '60s and '70s, right? Obviously, the first question is, all right, let's say JFK is not assassinated. Does Vietnam happen the way it does? All right, let's say Humphrey somehow pulls it off in '68, continues LB, LBJ's legacy. You're probably not in Vietnam as you were as long with Nixon, and you avoid all of Watergate more likely than not. I mean, it's just the trajectory is completely different, and what the country would have been like is completely here's, different. Here's, here's my favorite. A lot favorite, less cynicism, I would be. Here's my favorite one. Um, 1976, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. It ends up being a switch of like one out of every hundred votes in, in Ohio and Hawaii would have given Gerald Ford a full term. He would have beaten Carter. He came that close. Yeah. If Gerald Ford wins no in 76, Reagan. right, there's no Reagan. You know who I think there is? I think it's Ted Kennedy. Really? I think in the 80, 80 and I think yeah. the story of the 80s becomes right, the economy the picks up. And then there's Ted it's the Kennedy. Kennedy recovery. Right. The, the entire like era of prosperity is credited to liberal democratic governance instead yeah. of conservative I mean that's That's a very good very good what if yeah, what if and Carter is probably the ultimate long shot. We were talking about Bernie Sanders. I mean talk about that time. Nobody gave Carter a chance. Right. Uh, and he was the original sort of evangelical uh, An evangelical Democrat. An evangelical, evangelical Democrat. A born again Christian. Very, right. very well. Uh, and no one gave him a chance. And he was able to pull that off. And he was, yeah. he was smart, too. He knew the nominating rules yeah, had changed. You touched on a very good point. People don't realize how close Humphrey was and how close Gerald Ford was. They're both close. You can also make the argument Dukakis was very close up until a few weeks before. But, I mean, he was neck to neck. He was, well, he was ahead in the summer, too. I mean, he was 17, 17 yeah, points yeah, yeah. ahead. People forget there was such a thing in this country as Reagan fatigue. Yeah. We, can't, we can't say it now. Um, pick another one of these numbers. Let's just get another one of these. Uh, uh, 19. Number 19. What is the last movie you saw in a theater? 
Oh, that's funny. Um, do you still so go to the theater? I don't like going to the theater. It makes me uncomfortable, not just because of the recent spikes in, in violence in theaters. I just don't like I don't like theaters because if they're full, I get nervous with a bunch of people in the same room like that, all sort of sitting down. I don't like people behind me in a dark room like that. It's kind of very neurotic behavior. Um, I'm glad I'm not the only one with these. But I'm like, I love concerts, so I'm happy to be in a dark room of you know raging heavy metal for three hours. But there, uh, the last movie I saw in the theater, you know, people make fun of me for this. It was the guy who did Love Actually, who had Rachel McAdams in it, and this the guy who travels in time. It's, yeah, it's got to be like years, years ago. ago. I don't, I don't remember the name of it. Um, it was a good. It was a, it was a chick flick, for lack of better words. But Rachel McAdams and this British guy, and he's able to go back in time. Our producer Adam, yeah, look it to up. recognize it. That's he's, the last he's movie I saw on a theater it right now. Was this yeah, a date? so I was on a date. The, the lady I was with wanted to see it, and I, I explained about time. About, time, about yeah. time. And I explained how I did not like going to theaters, and she really wanted to see it, so I ended up doing it. Now I prefer to watch films on my Comcast DVR in the comfort of my own home. With the on-demand options offered by Comcast, Steve, i got to tell you, they don't get any you know, better. I, I, they really don't. Really there, don't. There, there's, isn't there a sort of, I always thought, there's just uh, romance not in the in the not in the romantics I don't know how you know romance of the big screen right like you see a movie and it's it's larger than life it's literally larger than yeah, life but, but, you know you're not a sucker for experience I still I go like I'm willing to alright like you know 14 or 15 and you're in high school and you're sort of starting out going on dates and these group things excuse me those old theaters I found them romantic with sort of the wooden chairs and kind of yeah, old and funky. But these new ones, it's all so nouveau. It's like these big comfort office yeah. chairs and you know, $9 Coca-Colas and, you know, these freaks. You get, you get free refills. You get free yeah, refills with those. These freaks are on their phone the entire time. Like, And then you always, I don't know what the situation is here, but in D.C., there's almost always a guy recording the movie for bootleg DVD <laughs> or something. And it's just all these things, and I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I, I'll, I'll I'm a sucker for all of it. I buy the big gulp. I get, oh, the, I get the popcorn. with. I have the layer of the butter, you know, stop yeah. halfway through, put the butter I, in. I just love the pause button, too, at home. You can go to the bathroom, get another drink. It's, it's good. I'm, I'm afraid we're going to lose that. It's like smoke at a diner. I'm, I'm afraid we're gonna. <laughs> I'm afraid we're going to lose it. Um, I had a few random questions I yeah, want to get yeah, to, yeah. sort of uh, uh, things I wanted to ask you about. Let me get through a couple of these. Um, a couple moments from your, your career here that I've always oh, kind of boy. been curious to ask you about. Um, here's one. Um, I remember this, and I, I, I covered Nancy Pelosi for, it was before she was Speaker. This was right. in 2005, 2006. Intel chairwoman. And, yeah. um, well, so, yeah, she was, that was the year they won back the House in 2006. You, I remember you had a, a moment with her at a press conference where, you asked her, I think it was after 2012, and she did not, you know, did not lead them back to the majority. And, and I, I know the question you were asking her, it was there's a sound premise, because I was even hearing this six years early covering her, and it was the idea that Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, the Democratic leadership, they were all over 70 years old, and there's concern from younger Democratic members that the leadership is basically calcifying. And you, you basically asked her, you said, you know, are you afraid that you're stifling, you know, and she bristled at the question, and she and, and I, I. I'm just curious what what the what you made of that moment. Did you talk to her about it afterwards? And yeah. So let's fly a little higher. If you go back to 2010, Pelosi lost 63 seats, which is unheard of. That is in a huge, huge number, especially a swing like that coming off of the margins they built up in 08. 
So the first seeds of perhaps Pelosi should get away were really planted then because she was so much of a pariah. If you remember the campaign the Republicans ran in 2010, they had a big bus that said, fire Pelosi. Every vulnerable Democrat, all these blue dog Democrats who now no longer exist, every ad was Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi. It, it was uh, the, the evil Nancy Pelosi, liberal of San Francisco, was tied around the necks of every single one of these moderate Democrats. So when they all lost, a lot of people said, you know what, it's time for her to leave right now. If she didn't want to do it, she wanted to stay on her own terms, that was fine. If you go to 2012, they weren't able to take back the House. Now, they did make some improvements, granted, because it was a presidential year election, but they still were in the sort of same predicament they were before, and she did weigh down folks in moderate districts. So between her, Clyburn, and Hoyer, you mentioned, all over 70, prior to that press conference, I had conversations as well as phone calls and emails from a lot of Democratic members of Congress saying, she needs to go, or Steny needs to go, or Clyburn needs to go, because if we're really the party of youth, we need to have some fresh blood in there. So I asked her about it. Now, I asked her while she was on stage with, I believe it was a Democratic Women's Caucus within the caucus. Uh, if I could go back that week, I would have probably asked her at her own press conference and not when she had uh, uh, all her, her female uh, partners up on stage with her. Uh, but so interestingly enough, two more of the backstory, I actually had had the flu that week. And I was sick. I had missed two days. And I sort of came in. And I was sitting there. And my mom was going in and out. And I just I remember her saying something like she was taking a victory lap. And in my mind, I said, wait, 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 how are you taking a victory lap when you weren't able to win the House back and you're still in a very difficult position with, with Speaker Boehner? Obviously, the president won, but she was making it seem like everything was fine and dandy. And everything wasn't fine and dandy because of the, what, the conversations I was having. And interestingly enough, Steve, we, here we are in 2015, nothing has changed. And the reason is twofold. Number one, she's a prolific fundraiser who appeals to liberals. Right. Number two... Her strength with women in the California delegation, she's untouchable. No one wants to take a swing at her. I actually think in 12 or 10, she would have been vulnerable if Steny and Clyburn had joined together and tried to make a run at her. Uh, but but that's, that's they, don't the other, have the, they don't have the fortitude to do it. That's the other thing with her that I noticed when I covered her, too. And, and when I covered her, the, the Pelosi-Steny-Hoyer war was really, oh, really yeah. raging. And, and the thing well, I she noticed was... Jack Murtha over him for that was the I, Yeah, I was there the day and that Murtha like announced, announced the candidacy. Right. Yeah, And it was, it, it was amazing, though, to me because she really successfully insulated herself, I thought. She took... I mean, I watched her. She took this guy, Joe Crowley. He was a yeah, congressman yeah, from New York. Yeah, yeah. He was a Hoyer loyalist. Sweet, and yeah. he was up for the position, the very, very important position of caucus vice chairman. Right. I mean, there's like student council secretary, you know, at Groton Dunstable High School right. or something. That's the level of importance here. But she recognized that if he gets that job, he has a toehold in leadership. And he can move up from there. And he's a Hoyer guy, and he can't have that job. And so at the last minute, it, it was just, I had just started covering uh, Capitol Hill, and I had never seen one of these before. There were three candidates in the race. There was, there was uh, Crowley, which is a woman from Illinois, Jan Schakowsky. Right. Now, her yeah. husband had just been convicted of a check-kiting <laughs> scheme. So he's going off to jail, and they want to run against Republican ethics that year. Right. So it can't be Jan Schakowsky. And there's this third guy who has 20 announced supporters. No way he has a chance. John Larson from Connecticut. Oh, yeah. So it's going it's to be, the history professor. It's gonna be yeah. Crowley by default. That's what everybody says. 
and the first ballot comes in, and in second place, nobody ever saw it coming, is John Larson. And then one of the veteran reporters is like, I know what happened. And then they come out in the second ballot, and Larson wins. And Pelosi and Murtha got together, and they, they, cut the, they, 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 they cut the rug out from under, uh, if that's the expression, from under Shikowsky, threw all their support behind Larson, and no, screwed and over Crowley. And he was there for some years. Now Crowley's been able to and get And it was all there. because but Crowley it, was a Hoyer guy. But here is this Nancy Pelosi in a nutshell, is that everyone sort of paints her as a San Francisco Bay Area liberal. And on its face, certainly that's true. But craftier. She grew up as the mayor of Baltimore's daughter, Thomas D'Alessandro, Nancy D'Alessandro. I've seen her childhood at home. I've seen the Paris, St. Leo's Paris in Little Italy, Baltimore. She kept, uh, she kept the files of the favors box. But who owed her dad favors? That is mean, rough and tumble, street, ethnic, politics. And that's where she grew up in. So this idea that she's sort of this rosy kumbaya, San Francisco liberal, no, 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 no. Right. She is big city machine, ethnic, punch you in the mouth politics. And she's been, I would say, by far the most effective congressional leader uh, in the last 15 years. She never loses a vote. She gets everybody to do what she wants. And like you mentioned, the fact that she got John Larson, who started with 20 votes, over the hump against a guy like Crowley, who seemingly had uh, majority support, shows you her power. I mean, she rarely loses, right. if ever. Her power and just and, and just that, that desire to make sure she holds on to it. And it's true. those threats it's are true. eradicated. Let's check in with Jeff and see what the, uh, the audience on Meerkat's talking about. I mean, they're all still busy praising Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> celebrating him. Um, question about the Iran deal. It's kind of late in the show to get that serious. What's, what's up going on with that? The Schumer uh, opposition to it. Do you think it's going to pass? Do you think it's, what's going to happen? Well, let me, let me give you my take on Schumer and the Iran deal. Um, I, I think he's done exactly what he set out to do in this. So Chuck Schumer, who is the Democratic leader in waiting in the Senate, unless there's some... Uh, unforeseen coup between now and 2017 came out and opposed the White House on its its signature second term uh, policy item, the uh, the Iran deal. But I think Schumer has done this in a very calculated way. I, I'm curious what you think. But I think Schumer, for for sort of constituent politics reasons here in in New York, wanted to be against this. He will now be on the record being against this. But he did it in a way where he didn't bring anybody else over. He's not on the Senate floor saying this is Neville Chamberlain part two. He's not twisting arms with Democrats. Democrats, like Jerry Nadler, a Democratic congressman from New York, he's for the deal. Schumer said, oh, we just disagree on this. That's all. That's Chuck Schumer, who's sort of, he's pleasing his constituencies here in New York, but at the same time, he's not going to piss off Democrats by killing this deal. The one thing I was surprised with with Schumer was the timing. It obviously came during the GOP debate, which would put it lower on the front right. page, the second page. We understood that timing. But the timing at the beginning of August, because the fear was is that his words would be used in attack ads throughout August uh, when the people opposed to the deal would ratchet up their pressure. Here's what happened to the Iran deal, in my opinion, politically. Donald Trump. Donald Trump took up all the media oxygen. So whereas I went into August thinking that Iran would be front and center, at least talked about every day. We didn't talk about we it. We rarely talked That's about a good it point. because it was yeah. all Donald Trump. It was Donald Trump this and Donald Trump that and Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. So anytime you would talk about the Iran deal, it was either a quick reader or it would be uh, a sort of a battle of op-eds in, in the newspaper. It was never this sort of front and center debate that had all these outside opposing forces flooding the airwaves with TV to a level we expected. That all being said, I think what Schumer did, the timing reflected that he knew 
that it was going to be okay. Because I don't think he would have dropped it at that time had he thought there was a real possibility that it could have been defeated. What I didn't predict, and I don't think anyone predicted, is that not only will this go through, it might not even reach a cloture vote. And if you look at right now, is only Schumer and Menendez are the Democratic senators opposed. So they might not get to 60. If they don't get to 60, that's much easier for Obama to say, hey, look, Congress couldn't even pass a disapproval of it. Now, I would have vetoed it, but they couldn't pass a disapproval of it. Um, I knew the Iran deal was going to pass, though, when Nancy Pelosi said at a press conference in mid-July that she was going to whip for it. Because if Nancy Pelosi is whipping for it, there Just is no chance yep. in hell that they were going to hit 290 uh, on the House side with Democrats because she can turn the screws and, and what she wants. But... And, you know, for everything we expected, I, I think it's sort of I th- out that's, of the a, that's a really I had not thought of it that way. I think that's a really good point. It, the, the press would have needed something in August to occupy right. itself, and it would have been the debate over Iran. And instead, we got something a lot more a lot more erratic than that. Let's um, let's try a few more of these icebreakers. Pick another uh, number here. Let's see what else we can uh, find out about you. Nine. Number nine. Does covering politics make you too cynical about politics? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you cover it the day-to-day like we do, I mean, you were a beat reporter, too, and you see the lobbyists literally walking into the Capitol. Uh, you see people that have preconceived positions totally dependent on what special interest group things think. Uh, that does make you cynical. But I got to tell you, where, where I am still impressed by politics is really at the state level. Um, I think if you're a governor, if you're a mayor... There's still a lot of things you can do, and there's still there are a lot of changes you can exercise, and you can kind of play in more moderate, uh, proactive areas, or try some things, or take some risks and, and, and achieve some challenges. Like, for example, I think, you know, look at Connecticut after Newtown. Malloy was able to run through rampant gun control measures much more uh, large scale than you saw at the federal level. Uh, and there's still, when, when people say, I want to get involved in politics, I say, go work at the local level because you're going to get more done immediately. But I think the cynicism is a problem of me, uh, especially because we kind of go into it thinking that uh, all the actors are bad and they're out, and, and they're, they're out for themselves uh, or they're fraudulent. And you kind of have to say to yourself, hey, you know what? Give these people the benefit of the doubt, at least off the bat, especially newly elected people. You don't know why they're there. Uh, you don't know what, what, what went off in their head. And, and for as unpopular as politicians are, I still have, uh, it's lessened in recent years, but an inherent respect for many of them because you know, we always talk about the issues and we talk about things. They're willing to put themselves out there. And my God, the way in which the media and the oppo researchers now go through every single thing you've ever done and it all plays out in public, I mean, God love you if you want to subject yourself to that, because I don't think there are a lot of people who want to in this day and age. And I think that's that's really sad, is that the climate is so that it's almost not worth going into the uh, into the ring because well, I mean, it's so painful. One thing I, I try to remind myself of sometimes, because, I mean, we, as a culture, we hate politicians and we think that they're... Uh, they're spineless, or we think right. that they're two-faced, I and mean, we have all these, you know. And Congress has the eight percent approval rating, and it's—I understand that. But it's the other—the other thing I look at is a good politician really is—they they reflect. 
public opinion more than they shape it. Sure. And so we look to them to be completely consistent on everything. We look to them, you know, tell us what you think, stand by what you think, never change, never waver. But what we're asking them to do is represent a constituency that is sending, we as a people send radically conflicting messages all the time. We say government's way too big, but we want our social security checks. We want our Medicare. We want all these services from government. And they, they are, the job of a politician is to somehow reflect that and somehow make sense of that and well, it's, not is, get too far in front of it. What does any business do? You're supposed to listen to your customers, right? And that's ultimately what a lot of politicians do. Uh, I think when you cover people and you see how some of them work, you develop a respect for how they're able to think many steps ahead. Like, for example, the way McConnell can play the game in the Senate is incredible. Uh, it's it's something that I think will be studied for a very long time, is McConnell is always four or five steps ahead. Interestingly enough, here's someone like McConnell who's trying to get money in politics. That's been the cause of his life because he views money as the great equalizer. It's not coming back to fight the Republican Party with super PACs being around for quite some time. But McConnell is always able to read the tea leaves and sort of figure out, okay, this is what I'm going to do to move my agenda forward. I think from a coverage standpoint, it's like, all right, you respect people that understand what has to happen, you know, funding the government, sort of things. I think what really detracts from all that, though, is when you have people that are just self-aggrandizing mudslingers who just just relish the free media attention and we go along with it into the into the rabbit hole that just and gets how ugly. can we we can't how do we resist that how does the media we don't resist know how that? to right now because I'm the saying, social like, media world is until we figure out what media is we won't figure out how to cover politicians uh, effectively because wait, we're at the integration of tv print and the internet right donald trump can release a 15 second instagram video that's on your show instantaneously that then becomes a talking point and a driving point. We need to figure sort of out right, what is media, how is media processed, and once you do that, and you can sort of figure out what people are 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 ingesting. But isn't it like isn't it, isn't it like the effectively it's, cover? It's like the Ted Cruz thing, though. I, I kind of feel like right. I mean, Ted Cruz looks to say, in many cases, the most bombastic thing possible. He looks, he seeks, seeks out right. the most sort of extreme bargaining position, whatever, and. Is the fact that somebody with a title, the fact that an elected official is willing to say these things or do these things seems inherently newsworthy. I mean, if, if, just, if a random congressman got on the floor and said the President of the United States is a traitor or something, yeah. I, I mean, even, even we're going to cover that because there, it seems like there's a the media almost has to respond to the most extreme thing as opposed to the guy who sits there and, well, I've looked at the actuarial tables and I've run the numbers on this and here's my plan to deal with yeah. something. I mean, that's that's not that interesting compared to... And it's true, and, and that's ultimately it's a business, right, that's based on buzz or what's newsworthy. I do think, though, there are ways, and you do a good job of this when you have your explainers, your Rachel does a good job of this, where you can get into the complex issues and paint them in a way that's interesting and why it's important and why it matters and perhaps we could do a better job of that you know i would love to have an entire show talking about gerrymandering and uh, talking about the uh, going into the budget deal and showing the carve outs and whatnot but you know we talk about ted cruz on the senate floor chicken and the egg argument right you don't know what budget budget carve-outs i found car- <laughs> whenever we do budget carve-outs our ratings just appropriate our ratings yeah. just jump yeah but yeah it, it, it's I try and tell people, if uh, if that wonky stuff got the numbers, we'd love to do it. Cause we I, yeah, to do it. I used to. It's, it's so funny. Like I, when I started out, I wrote a column. When I finished that roll call, I wrote a column for the New York Observer for a couple of years, and I, owned they, by they, Donald Trump's son-in-law. Right? Well, yeah, that's a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
But that, I told Another round. I told them uh, I don't want to know the uh, I don't know the traffic for my stories. They'll tell you. They can tell me the audience. They can tell me. I said, I, I just don't want to know. I'm like I kind of have confidence that I'm doing what I should be doing, and I just I don't want to know. And I look back at those days now from where I am right now. I, I do this show, and we get the you know every 15 minutes you get ratings. Right. You, know, you get a ratings report from our Order, weekend yeah, show. Yeah. And it's like from uh, 9 a.m. to 9:15. Here's your audience. 9:15 to 9:30. Here's your audience. And I, I, I can't help it. I, I stare at it and I obsess over it. And it's like, why did we drop at 9.30? Who was right. the guest? What was the topic? And it's, I have to remind myself. I'm like, I think with my show, it's like when it spikes, you know, when it, when it, at 8.30, we suddenly have a huge audience. I'm like, you know what this is? This is people who fell asleep watching Lockup. <laughs> and they're waking up at 8.30 in the morning in my yeah, show's on. And they're, you know, they're clicking it off because they're like, this isn't Lockup. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it could be as simple as that. And we sit there and we make all these grand conclusions about what the audience wants and the audience but doesn't want. On that point, and I think this is very important, how ridiculous is the Nielsen system? The most antiquated, outdated, 21,000 households system. in the country. It people. absolutely yeah. has no relevance in this day and age. The fact that all this money... And all these strategic decisions, all everyone at this table's job is based on this system. Any other business would say no. And kids out there listening, if you want to go make a billion dollars, go disrupt Nielsen and go disrupt the way TV ratings are done right now and figure out a much better way uh, to do it. You know, I, I would almost, it's just so anti-privacy, but... Every third cable box has a little chip in it. Yeah, I don't know. Something like that. Something that's better because the way it is now, it's out of the 1950s. It it's is. Ridiculous. It is amazing. They have a monopoly. And right. we are like, I'm in that building, 30 Rock, every day. And it's at 4.15 p.m. roughly. Come out, the, the numbers come out. There. And you yeah. can just, every person in that building, it comes in. They stop whatever they're doing. They, I'm guilty of this, too. They look it up. Who did well yesterday? Who did poorly? And you All get, right. like, the first time I sat in for, uh, I sat in for Rachel Maddow, uh, about two years ago, when I had, I, this was my introduction to this. I had not done a primetime show on my own before, and I sat in, and they told me before the show, like, Phil Griffin, who's the president of MSC, calls me, don't worry, no pressure, just have fun, we want you to have a good experience. I, I, I'm like, I took it to heart, no pressure, I did the show, no worries. And I'm just waiting the next day, I'm like, oh, I'm curious how I did, you know, whatever. The numbers come in at 415, and it was like, this was during the government shutdown in 2013, so the numbers were really good because of the government shutdown. And we got really good numbers. And the next thing I know, my inbox is flooded with these people at MSNBC, like <laughs> higher-ups who I've never talked to before, congratulating me and telling me. And I'm like, all because, show, because that Nielsen number came good in good show. that day. And I was like, oh, right. so I guess it did matter, you know? Right. But it was... It, it, was um, it, it, it Personally, it drives me nuts. And, it, you know, stories... I've guest hosted a lot last year. It's stories you would never think... You know, plane stories that there's spike. You know, we did one on uh, NASA funding. It's just, you don't know. It's just throwing spaghetti at a wall. It really is. Sounds like uh, Jeff's getting some more feedback here. Let's check in over there. Um, I mean, oh, I thought he was. He tapped me. I, I did. Uh, well, that was a while ago. I mean, that was a while ago. Oh, sorry. I was going to make a point about the 1860 election, and then somebody asked if you uh, ever get nervous about interviewing any specific people. I thought that was a good question. Oh, um, I have an answer to that one, yeah. Yeah? No, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'm curious what you think Wait, of this. Wait, can really... I? Oh, yeah. Briefly, when you were talking about, like, the best election, I was, like, jumping around because, like, 1860, what was better than 1860? Lincoln's here, you had four candidates, Douglas and Lincoln with their history. Douglas, when he knows he's gonna lose, goes on a barnstorming campaign through the South, trying to convince them to stay in the Union, even though he knows he's a failing candidate, he's gonna die four months later, and his last public act is barnstorming the South, trying to 
preserve the union, that was an awesome election. Sounds like someone <laughs> forgot about Clinton Dole. <laughs> <laughs> who do I get nervous? I, I, so I'm going to ask you this, Luke, in a minute, who you get nervous, if you get nervous yeah. interviewing anybody. But um, my answer would be um, Barney Frank. We have on the show, and, he, and he's nice to come on the show and everything, but he has a very, I mean, he's, a, he's extremely smart, extremely quick, and he has a very adversarial relationship with the press. And, I, and I, honestly, when I read some of his critiques of the press or hear them, I, 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 it gets me thinking, because some of the stuff he says I do think has, has validity to it. But he is somebody, I mean, I remember we had him on uh, maybe a year ago or so, and I didn't even, this was my introduction to interviewing him on air I think it was it was during the Israel Palestinians yeah. or something was going on there I don't even remember but I just remember he had strong feelings and came at me very hard telling me I was coming into it with a bias and everything and um, and it was just it was a it was when I have him on now I'm, I'm happy to have him on but I'm, I'm I'm like I better do my homework for this one I think that Frank is somebody who he's he has such a grasp of history, and he can say to you, like, well, in 1996, I actually did this bill, and blah, 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 and he kind of throws you off your game like that. Um, where I get nervous is if it's a big booking, and it's a big sort of uh, interview of the day, and I'm out to confront the individual, and I have my graphics, and I have my research, and that's when I sort of the, the butterflies get going for me, is sort of, am I going to properly explain why this person is either contradicting themselves or why this could be problematic. As far as anyone individually, when you're on Capitol Hill and you're around them all the time, none of those guys really rattle you. Um, I, I, I suppose in, in sort of press scrums is when we get a, a prominent cabinet secretary, like we had Hillary Clinton come to the Hill, we had Kerry come to the Hill, uh, you know, Ash Carter, Hagel, that's what kind of gets me a little bit anxious because I don't want to come across as stupid to a cabinet secretary who is there. And a lot of the times, as if we're asking them questions in a public press conference, a lot of the times it's being carried live because either they're in trouble or they're commenting on a very important part of the day. Uh, and then I don't care what anyone says. Uh, uh, you're automatically always nervous in front of a president. Just because the way... I've never interviewed Obama as president. I interviewed him when he was a candidate. But... Just the Secret Service and the way in which every time the president moves, you know, ten sets of eyes move with him. You're front and center, and you they always cut an intimidating figure, yeah, no matter who it is. Even well, the yeah. X ones still do. Well, well let's have, what about those? Like, because this is my. I've interviewed Clinton a few times as an ex-president for NBC. And he, he's still intimidating as, as an ex-president. Even we're talking about uh, uh, how to clean latrines in Africa. <laughs> that's still a little bit intimidating because you're some guy. Well, it's what you're saying is like it's it's because I this is my experience in press conferences. I'm wondering how you feel about it. It's like everybody's jockeying to get the question in. If it's whoever it is, a presidential candidate, a president, whoever, a big figure. When you got like 50 yeah. people in the press there. I mean, I learned this first in New Jersey with, like, you know, McGreevy, the governor at the time, doing a press conference. And you try to get your question in, and then you, when, the instant happens when you realize, okay, I got the floor right now. Right. And everybody else suddenly gets silent, uh, and you feel right. everybody wheel around and turn to you. It's you versus I get this feeling, and I, I, I don't, I'm not that nervous in front of crowds generally, but I suddenly find myself, like, my heart rate really picks up, and I'm, like, I'm rushing the words out all of a sudden. I'm stumbling. 
I'm not really aware of what the, the person is saying, you know? It's really reflective of what the story is. So if it's just like your average day on Capitol Hill, not so much. But if it's one of those press conferences, like during the government shutdown or during the debt limit, where everyone's going live and you have Fox, CNN, and MS all at the same time, and you're screaming and getting it over, yeah, you, you, you want to perform well in your 30 seconds of, uh, of fame in, in the moment. But honestly, I'm curious as to your opinion. I mean, the more reps you do, it kind of becomes, you internalize the craft. It's kind of like, all right, person A and move on to person right. B. Right. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, what I try to compare it to is my very first interview with a, uh, with a big political figure. Uh, I was in college writing uh, for the Daily Free Press at Boston University, and there was going to be a congressional race in one of the Boston districts, Maxwell Kennedy. So oh, yeah. one of the, one of the sons of right one yeah, of the sons yeah, of Robert yeah. Kennedy was looking to run and he was coming to my school so they sent me over to cover it and they know I do politics and everything yeah. so now I, I mean I, and I, I just I I came armed with all these questions because he's like I was gonna try to trick him I was gonna I wasn't sure about his residency status in the district so I was gonna ask him the question like uh, if you were to drive home tonight <laughs> from here how would you get there and see if I could tr- you know I had all these like clever tricks up my sleeve and everything. And I'm the only reporter there. There's like 12 people in the room. It ends, and there's you know, the college Democrats or whatever. And they're like, "Yo, sure, come come interview him." And I, so I, I stand next to him. He turns around, and just in that moment, it just hits me. I'm like, "He's a Kennedy." Yeah. And yeah. I'm not, you know, right, right. I'm a, and I should be like, I should be like, I'm a Kornacki, so screw him. But I, instead, I'm like, I'm a Kornacki. He's a Kennedy. You know, I'm, you know, I, all my like little inferiority complex comes out. And the next thing I know, I mean, I'm standing there. And I'm like, I'm self-conscious. I, I started blushing. Um, I remember, I'm like, and, I, and I'm aware that I'm blushing. I'm like, he must think I am such a tool right now. And then I, I, I started, I just asked him softball questions. And I walked out of there. I was so mad at myself after that. So with, with that as my like first experience, now, yes, I'm, I'm more comfortable, you know. But he didn't, uh, he didn't run for Congress. So I think I, I, think I scared him out of the race. <laughs> Did not. We only have a we only have a couple minutes left. I I, I want to ask you a couple other uh, a couple sure. other questions though. We're ten minutes over, so we'll do this in, okay. we'll do this in three minutes. Um, but we want to ask you like you know, some career stuff here. Here's a couple sure. quick questions. You report from the field on Capitol Hill. You do a lot of studio stuff. Um, MSNBC. What do you studio or field? What do you like better? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, me personally, uh, I like the DC feel. So I like sort of being in Congress and being around there. Uh, I don't like the uh, presidential campaign field because I don't think the way in which it, it, it works now, you can ask real questions. I think that they do these cattle calls, and if it's any candidate of prominence, they limit the amount of time the media gets. It's a barrage of sort of gunfire questions almost at these candidates. And a lot of the times they'll go to outlets that are friendly and they'll sort of dance around. So I prefer to be in the studio because I think when you're in the studio, you get your, for let's say you have an hour show, you get 48 minutes of airtime, right? And in these 48 minutes, I can leave my imprint not only on the news of the day, but also what I think is important. Because as you know, if you're a host, you get to decide what kind of stories you want to have on the air, which I like. So I say it's it's between playing quarterback or receiver, and I'd rather play quarterback a lot of the time. Um, all that being said, though, there is something inherently really special about being part of history when there is a big moment in the field. So whether that's Gabby Giffords walking on the floor for the first time, uh, being there at Obama's first inauguration, 
you know, being there the night that uh, uh, you know, the debt ceiling was figured out at, at, at you know 11:30 and it was expiring at midnight. Uh, those are sort of things you never forget. I, I feel that field experiences you don't forget uh, as quickly as you forget an in-studio experience. But all that being said, I prefer the studio. If you were not doing political journalism, what do you think you'd be doing? Uh, probably something with sports. Uh, you had a sports show on Sirius, right? Sirius yeah. Yeah. James, James Carville. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's fun. Four years of that was just a blast. So probably something related to that. But honestly, I, I actually am interested in a lot of things. I'm interested in craft beer. I'm interested in these sort of American-made clothing lines like Marine Layer. I find that fascinating. Uh, I'm interested in, in the emergence of, of millennials and how they engage in community-wide initiatives for social good. So if, if someone came to me yet tomorrow and said, you know, you can no longer do political TV, I'd, I'd be okay. I mean, there's a bunch of other things I have an interest in. Uh, and I've really, really gotten into paddleboarding and, and, and surfing. So that's uh, that's something I'd like to try and do in Cocker. Not professionally in any capacity, but, you know, and, good hobby. And a final question. Uh, how many games will the Patriots win the AFC East by this year? Well, here's a good, that's a good <laughs> question because, look, I'm going to be objective here. You know, you and I have had our back and forth about this a few times. Oh, so can, I, can I just say, by the way? Something objectively. We, I, 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 I wanted to, like, we had a little on-air battle during one of these deflation things. That was great I, Well, I felt bad because I thought it was good TV. Did you TV, see the ratings after that? What? <laughs> 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 was I just, we were on Alex Wagner's show, and I realized game. after the segment, I don't think she realized, I, I meant it in good fun. I thought you meant it in good fun. I think you were wearing a Bills tie, which uh, set me I don't off. Know it was that far. Along. But uh, but I didn't. I think afterwards she didn't realize I was trying to have fun with it. So it but anyway, great. you know, we had a great time. The ratings were fun. A lot of got a lot of good buzz on Twitter. But look, objectively, Miami's a lot better, right? They went out and got Sue. They have a very good defense. People say they have a top ten quarterback in Tannehill. So Miami's better. The Jets uh, are offensively. Uh, deficient, but their defense is quite good. They had a very good draft. The Bills have a tremendous defense. They have great skill players. They don't have a quarterback. So what I would say to you is that unlike in years past where you had a cakewalk to the AFC East, you now face a tough Buffalo team, a very tough Miami team, and a Jets team that's going to punch you in the mouth. You'll probably win both. But (laughs) that being said, I still think the Patriots will, will win. But who, who knows? Is the Golden Boy the front for the first four games? Um, I don't bet against Belichick, though. Not for AFC East titles. I mean, they, what? They've won, like, 15, right? They, only, they lost to Miami, won one in 09. Or, they've, they've won 11-plus games eight right. of the last nine years. And they won, even, even the year they Brady won the was AFC, out. Yeah, and the they AFC went, East, yeah. the, the year they the Brady was out was the only year they lost the AFC East. But they still won 11, 11 games. games. Right, right. right. Miami, who played extremely I'll, I'll just say, but well. the, I, 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 there was actually, believe it or not, I'm Massachusetts born and raised. There was a, a two- or three-year period where I was a Bills fan. Oh, really? It was when the... Uh, when the Patriots cut ties with Parcells, I was okay. I loved Parcells. Right, the um, Carroll era. So yeah, and then Carroll yeah. came in, and I hated Carroll because he right. was the anti-Parcells. At the same time, my all-time favorite athlete got signed by the Bills from the Canadian Football League, Doug, Doug Flutie. Flutie yeah. And Doug Austin Flutie College did guy. the Doug Love Flutie it. thing in yeah, Buffalo. Yeah, yeah. He led him to playoffs the first right. year. And the second year, they, he's got in the playoffs, and, and they, they benched, benched him. him. Rob I, Johnson, I have never been angrier. Everyone says the reason why the Bills have not won then is the curse of Doug Flutie. And quite frankly, I agree. And everything that I've heard was that that was not a coaching call. That was a 
that was ownership. Upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. And the Johnson. Rob and, Johnson. And, and the most absurd thing about that is the reason why that change was made is that Johnson had like a 300-yard game in Week 17 against the Colts in a meaningless game. Right. And they started. The oh, but he had he had the golden arm. Right. They, they just kept saying and he got however, injured every third however, game. <laughs> in fairness to Rob Johnson, he did lead them to a playoff victory. And then the forward lateral in Nashville ah. happened, and that's why they lost. That was, he did win that game. That was just proof Johnson that did win the game. God likes Doug Flutie, it's just true. like the, just like it's the rest true. of us. But it's I was true. I was with you for two years, so. <laughs> and we we didn't happy do any happy. of the the bu bc bickering, so that was good yeah. too. So, yeah, uh, but Luke Russer, thank you for joining Thanks, us tonight. This was great. Appreciate really appreciate a lot this. Of fun. A lot of fun. Uh, thank you to Jeff Eldridge. For our moderating tonight, hell of a job there. Thank you to everybody who tuned in and, and commented on Meerkat. Thank you to Adam Naboa, our producer tonight. Thank you, everybody watching and listening to the podcast. We'll have another exciting guest soon. We don't know who it is yet, but I'll announce it on Twitter, so pay attention for that. Have a good night, everybody.